Welcome to the Progressive Property Podcast, helping you invest in property for freedom, choice, and profit. You'll learn new, innovative, and multiple streams of property income, whether you want to start, scale, or systemize, and even if you don't have deposits. Hi, this is Peter Jones, Chartered Surveyor, Author, and Property Investor, and this is the Progressive Property Podcast. And recently, over the last few weeks, I've been putting out a series of videos on Facebook talking about different property strategies and how we actually find the properties that we need in order to implement those strategies. But of course, the big flaw in that is not everybody is going to get my posts on Facebook. You may not be my friend on Facebook. By the way, if you want to friend me on Facebook, that's cool. Uh, I've got no idea how you do that, but I know that you can. And if you request uh, me to be your friend, then if I can find the right button, I'll click it and say yes. So go and find me. But I know that in the meantime, not everybody's going to have seen my posts, which is a shame because I've been thinking about this a lot, trying to come up with some really good content, which is going to help anybody who's thinking about different property strategies. So I thought what would be really good is to put it all here on the podcast so that you can hear it if you haven't seen it on Facebook. And of course, the other big flaw with Facebook, much as I love Facebook, is that it's becoming quite commercial, isn't it? And uh, if you want people to see your posts, you probably have to boost them by paying them a tenner and all this kind of stuff, which is great. Thank you, Facebook. But probably doesn't help us in this instance. So that's what I've done. So in this particular podcast, we're going to be thinking about HMOs. So without further ado, I will stop. I'm going to scrape in the audio which I I put onto the videos. By the way, if you want to go off on Facebook, you'll probably find the videos if you actually want to watch the videos, or you can come to my website, you'll see them there. But there we are, you don't need to, because you can just listen now. Listen to me talking all about HMOs. I'll catch up with you at the end when the audio finishes. We're looking at HMOs, which stands for Houses of Multiple Occupation. So a HMO I would have called it bedsits back in the day, if you've ever watched Rising Damp with Rugby, that's how HMOs started out, where you'd have a number of people who each had an individual room and they rented each room separately. Now, over the last three or four decades, I guess that HMOs have actually become slightly more sophisticated. And there's different levels of HMOs and there's different types of tenants that you can find in HMOs. So we're going to think about how we need to structure our portfolio in order to make the maximum return from our cash. So the first thing we need to understand is our local area or the area where we want to undertake HMO investing because not every area is the same. Why is that? Because not every type of tenant is going to be the same or not every type of tenant is going to want the same type of property. The type of tenant that you're going to attract largely depends A upon the area itself and B where within your locality you're going to be creating your HMO. So, for example, if you know that at the local hospital there's a shortage of accommodation and you're targeting nurses and doctors, then you'll be providing, obviously, HMO accommodation near enough for them to be able to use it. If you want to buy a property near a town or city centre, you may not know initially who's going to be in your HMO, but the chances are if it's in the town or city centre, it's probably going to be, I don't know, young professionals. You will get an idea of who's going to be in your HMO when you undertake your local research. And by the way, every area is different. So I'm only talking in very general terms. You need to do some specific research to see who's going to go into your HMO. Now, there's various levels of HMO. They're not all the same. So, for example, at the bottom of the panel, we could create a HMO for people who are on benefits. 
We could create HMOs for blue-collar workers. We could create HMOs for professional people. We could create HMOs for students. We could create high-end HMOs, which are almost like a boutique hotel. And we can probably overlap different strategies as well, because we can do all of this within the context and envelope of rent to rent We'll think about this in a, in a future video. We could also set ourselves up with a HMO which would work for serviced accommodation, which we could do with or without rent to rent So there's many, many different permutations. We need to be absolutely clear as to what it is that we're trying to achieve. Now, one of the big drawbacks of HMOs, although actually you could argue that it's a positive thing, depending upon which side of the fence you're sitting, is that they're heavily regulated. They're heavily regulated for good reason, because they're regarded as being a potential fire risk. And if they're not regulated, they could also become something of a social problem. So the regulations are constantly changing. As things stand at the moment, you would need a license for a HMO if there's five or more people sharing and it's on three floors or more. But from October 2018, that is changing and the number of floors becomes irrelevant. It's just whether you've got five people sharing or not as two separate, at least two separate households. What does that mean? Well, five individuals who are not related or three and two, it doesn't really matter. If there's more than one family, then it's a HMO and it needs a license. How do you get the license? Well, you apply to your local authority and they will give you a license if they think that you meet the criteria. And the criteria isn't just based around the property, although that's important, but they also look at you and decide whether you're a fit and competent landlord. It makes sense actually to apply for the license through an agent if you have one, because presumably if you're using an agent, hopefully they're fit and competent and that would be a great help. So what are they looking for when they're issuing the license? Well, things like that you comply with fire regs, that you have fire resistant doors, fire doors, that you have smoke alarms, that you have heat detectors, that you have proper means of escape and exit, all of that kind of stuff. What else will it also be looking at room sizes and the regulations around room sizes have become quite strict. I was talking to somebody the other day who's got a couple of HMOs and I was asking how they're getting on with them and they were quite despondent because they created their HMO three years ago. Since then the minimum room size criteria has changed and they cannot use some of their rooms. They're too small, which means rather than having a five bed HMO, they're now down to a three bed HMO. We need to be careful of this kind of stuff. And by the way, the regulations are constantly changing. And just because the regulations are what they are today doesn't mean they're going to be the same in a year's time or two years time or five years time. By the way, regulations across the UK are different as well. If you go to Scotland, for example, they have more exacting regulations than you'll currently find in England. So that's Scotland for you. So be very, very careful. Make sure that you know and understand the regulations in your area. Another thing to think about is Article 4. What is Article 4? Well, Article 4 is a planning device which uh, is granted to local authorities by central government, which allows local authorities in this context to be able to regulate the proliferation of HMOs. What happened was that some local authorities felt they had far too many student HMOs and that student ghettos are being created. And so central government gave them the powers under Article 4 to be able to limit the number of HMOs. So how does that work? Well, if they designate an area as being within Article 4, then you have to get a license and planning consent for a HMO 
even if under the normal course of things, you wouldn't need a license and planning consent. So for example, if you had a small HMO, we could call it a minimo, which perhaps only had four people, which you wouldn't normally need a license or planning for. In an Article 4 area, you need a license and you need planning. Now, just because there's Article 4 doesn't mean that you're not going to get planning or a license, by the way, but it means that the local authority can make sure that you can't just go off and create your HMO. Some local authorities have got like a blanket ban where they've put Article 4. Others, they just want to make sure that they have the right people operating the right type of property. So you may still be able to do a HMO in an Article 4 area. How are you going to find out? Well, you need to talk to your local planning authority. So the upside of creating a HMO is that the income can be fantastic. At least it's fantastic when all the rooms are rented out. The downside of a HMO is that you will quite often find, depending upon who your target market is and depending upon where your HMO is actually located, that the tenants can be rather transitory. They can come and go quite quickly, which means that you're constantly letting empty rooms paying fees to agents if you're using agents. And so that can actually limit your cash flow. But if you can actually get a, a good model where you perhaps have a strong demand in a good area where you can get decent tenants, then it can be a really good little cash cow to have HMOs. The downside of a HMO is that it is management intensive. So my advice would be that I wouldn't even think about doing a HMO unless I knew that within the area where I was going to do HMOs, I could find a decent agent. Now, this goes against all the received wisdom. I understand that because we can think about, you know, investment areas, where's the best place to invest? Well, I wouldn't even be thinking that. I'd just be thinking, where do I know of a good agent who is competent at running HMOs? Because actually they're worth their weight in gold because it doesn't really matter if you go off and find the best investment location in the world, theoretically. If you cannot manage your HMO effectively, once you set it up, it doesn't matter, does it? It's just not going to work. So I would start by finding the right agent and then think about actually giving them some HMOs. That's just my views on it. What do you think? So you need to have the right management. Now, that can be expensive. But the downside is that if you don't have the right management, you're probably going to end up managing it yourself, which some people enjoy. Personally, I wouldn't enjoy it. The other thing that strikes me about that is that if we're in property because we want a passive income, it's not very passive because HMOs can actually be very, very intensive. Finally, let's think about finance, because one of the things which is a great benefit of HMOs is that you probably won't be um, financing your property using a traditional buy-to-let mortgage. Now, it gets a little bit confusing because I have applied for HMO finance through what was essentially a buy-to-let lender. And we all got ourselves into a right old tizzy about it because the lender didn't understand HMOs and they were trying to treat them as buy-to-lets. And they kept sending out valuers who were used to valuing buy-to-lets and they were coming back with the most ridiculous figures. So in the end, I did what I should have done in the first place, which is I went to a specialist HMO mortgage broker who put me in touch with a specialist HMO stroke commercial lender who understood what they were doing. Because the whole point of a HMO is it is like a little business. It's a little lettings business in its own entity. And so when you find the right lender and when you couple that with the right valuer who understands how to value cash flowing property like that, then you will get a commercial valuation 
which values the property not on a bricks and mortar basis, which is how buy-to-lets are valued, but they'll be valued on a cash basis, on the rental that they produce, which is how HMOs ideally should be valued. And by doing that, I was able to take my little terraced house, which just in round numbers, £80,000 for my little terraced house, £40,000 to convert it into a five-bed HMO, meaning I spent £120,000. When the valuer went out to value it on an income basis, the figure came back, I think it was at 180. Uh, so by the time that the bank took off various deductions, which they did for management, and then discounted it down to 75% loan to value, I was able to borrow out all of the money that I put in. I got out £120,000, having spent £120,000. Can you do that? Well, it all depends on which broker you go to, and it all depends on what mortgage products are in the market at any one time. Just for the purposes of transparency, that was two years ago. The mortgage market has changed. Is that product still available? I don't know. But there will be other products out there, so you need to just talk to a good broker who'll be able to help you to arrange a similar thing. So if you know what you're doing, they can be wonderful. Although I have my frustrations with HMOs when I have a couple of empty rooms, I'm glad to say that the agents that I have are pretty much on the ball, and so I don't have many voids. But to be honest, it doesn't really matter to me because I put in £120,000 and I got £120,000 back out. Any money that I get out of that HMO is now really creating me an infinite return, which I think is pretty cool. Plus, the value of my asset has gone from 80 plus 40 up to 180, in theory at least. So would I do HMOs? Yes, with some reservations. I'd want to know exactly what the agents in the area are like so that I wouldn't have to get involved and I'd want to be looking for an area with good agents and potentially where there are decent tenants. You want to think about where you are on that scale that we're talking about. Do you want to be right at the bottom with tenants on benefits? I know people who make very good money doing that, but it's quite intensive. Or do you want to be near the top doing sort of high-end, almost serviced accommodation, almost boutique hotel stuff? Maybe, but then it's going to cost you more to set that property up. At a very basic level, your HMO is probably going to be very similar, in essence, physically at least, to a buy-to-let. And so at a very basic entry level, you're going to find your HMOs as you would any other property through an estate agent. But there is a big but here. There are some things that we need to think about, which we're probably not going to be thinking about when we're looking for our buy-to-let. So bear with me. I know it sounds simplistic. It's probably slightly more complicated, and I will get onto that. But at a more sophisticated level, a HMO could actually be created out of something which isn't a residential dwelling house. And a lot of HMO investors convert properties to create HMOs. So, for example, they may find a pub which they can convert into a HMO, or they may find an old care home, which they can convert into a HMO, or it could even be an old office building. It doesn't necessarily have to be a house. So most of us, though, particularly if we're just starting out, are probably going to be looking for a basic house, which we can then convert into a HMO. By the way, why am I talking about converting and not just going out and sourcing HMOs? Of course, that is a valid route. If you don't have the time to do the work, if you don't have the time to project manage and find a team, put power team together and all that kind of stuff, investigate all the regulations. I fully understand. You could go and find yourself a property which is already being converted into a HMO or even purpose-built as a HMO. Quite rare, but there are one or two out there. 
But the reality is that if you want to make a decent profit from your property, you want to do the work. Why? Because it's in the development that a lot of the profit is actually made. Even if it's profit on paper in your equity, you'll greatly increase the equity and therefore your wealth by doing the work. So I went off looking for properties to convert into HMOs a while back. And there was this one particular town where I really fancied owning a portfolio of HMOs. And I knew exactly what I wanted. I wanted three bedroom terrace houses or three bedroom semi-detached houses. And the, the houses had to have a very particular configuration of accommodation because on the ground floor, I wanted two rooms and I wanted a big kitchen and I wanted a, a hallway with a side passage linking all the rooms together. Because if I knew if I could find a property which met that description, then I'd be able to convert the property into a five-bedroom HMO. And if it was big enough, I'd be able to make it into a five-bedroom HMO with ensuite bathrooms on every room. It was strange because I went to look at so many properties in this particular town and I couldn't find any properties which matched that description. But a dozen miles away, literally only about 10-15 minutes drive away in a completely different town, there was more of these properties than you could shake a stick at. So it doesn't necessarily follow that every property that you're going to find, even if it's the right kind of size, is going to be the right physical configuration unless you do some fairly major adaptations to it. Now, some investors do do that. I've met investors, for example, who've bought old hotels and bed and breakfasts and turned those into HMOs, multi-room HMOs, and that can be done. But it may require building extensions, for example. It may require building extensions, even if you keep to a simple house. One of the things which you need to think about when you're creating a HMO is that they are going to have a specific requirement for shared accommodation. And quite often, the kitchen in itself isn't big enough to be able to provide that shared accommodation. Now, rather than taking it out of one of the other rooms which you want to use as a bedroom, what many investors do is that they will build, for example, a conservatory on the back of the property. One of the great things about doing a conservatory is if it's of the right size, then you don't need planning consent because there's permitted development prior approval. You can just do it as long as it's the right size. Obviously, you've got to tell the council and ask conform with building regs and all of that, but you don't have to make a planning application which speeds the process up and makes it much more streamlined and straightforward. But you'd have to think about that as well. So these are all the things that we need to be thinking about when we're looking for our properties, the raw material which we're going to create our HMO from. Where are we actually going to find those properties? Well, probably at the local estate agents. Why? Because we're basically looking just for a house, aren't we? So the house is going to be at the local estate agent. Would I go into a local estate agent and say, I'm looking for a property which is suitable for conversion to a HMO? Probably not. Why? Because probably most estate agents aren't going to even understand what a HMO is, let alone how you create it, and let alone what you need to be looking for. Now, please, if you're an estate agent and you do know, don't get offended. But many of your colleagues and peers would not know. So I'd keep it very, very simple. And I would just go through looking through, through all the details of the houses with a rough idea of where those, those particular houses are going to be in that town and just do it the normal way as if I was looking for a buy to let. It's as simple as that. Now, one thing which might surprise you is that when I bought my properties to convert into HMOs, I tended not to negotiate too hard on the price. So, for example, a typical three-bedroom terraced house in the town which I ended up buying and creating my HMOs in cost around about £80,000. If it was on the market for 
£83,000, I'd probably just pay 80 or 81 or 81 and a half or whatever it happened to be. I wasn't going to go and try and get it for 70 or 65 because I knew that if I got the right property in the right area and I did the right works, then I was going to be able to create a property which would refinance itself and which I'd be able to get all of my money back out of. So there we are, a few thoughts on HMOs. I hope you found that useful. So HMOs can be a great way of generating cash in property, but they can be quite intensive. And there's a lot of regulation around them. And I referred in the audio to the changes that are coming. 1st of October 2018, I don't know when you're listening to this, but as of the 1st of October 2018, the regulations around licensing uh, HMO are changing. So what's going to happen is that the three-storey element is being removed, meaning that any HMO occupied by five or more individuals who are not all related to one another will require a HMO licence regardless of how many floors the HMO is on. Let me just repeat that. Any HMO occupied by five or more individuals who are not related to one another will require a HMO licence. Any property where there's effectively two separate families, so that could be one person and four others, if you see what I mean. So basically, if you've got five people in your HMO, it needs a license, doesn't it? That's what they're really saying. And you need to apply for the license before the 1st of October 2018. If it's past the 1st of October 2018 and you haven't, then you need to do something pretty quickly. If you're buying a HMO or you're creating a HMO after October the 1st, 2018, make sure you get the license in place. And it's not just the number of occupants that are changing or the number of floors that those occupants occupy. There's going to be changes to minimum HMO room sizes as well. So the first thing you need to know is that if you have a room which is less than 4.64 square metres, 4.64 square metres, you have to tell your local authority. And you probably do that when you apply for the licence. You also need to make sure that any sleeping accommodation used by anybody who's over the age of 10 is not less than 6.51 square metres. And any sleeping accommodation used by somebody who's 10 years or younger is no less than 4.64 square metres. If you've got double bedrooms in your HMO and the occupants of your double bedrooms are older than 10, then they have to have a floor area of not less than 10.22 square metres. So, again, things that we need to think about, these are changes that are coming in, probably for good reason, but I know that some people who've got older-style HMOs with smaller rooms are going to get caught out by that, so do check. The law is constantly changing, that's why it's a great thing to have a podcast, because we can keep you updated. So I've been Peter Jones, I hope you've enjoyed this. If you want to know more about me, you can always come over to my website, www.thepropertyteacher.co.uk, where you'll find loads of resources, my blog, all that kind of stuff be great to see you there you can also sign up for my friday morning newsletter by the way otherwise keep tuning in to the progressive property podcast and i'll see you here next week and we'll be talking about something which will be exciting and relevant again and uh yeah be great if you could leave a review uh you know the score if you go to wherever you get your podcasts from whether that be you know itunes stitcher soundcloud whatever leave a review that would be very very welcome so thank you for that In the meantime, until next time, here's to successful property investing.